morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Steve Williamson here. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Um, we're going to be talking to a, a speaker that, that Dorr had here. I think it was in 2011. And we had him on the program back when our program was 15 minutes long. I think we had him on twice. Um, I didn't double-check carefully enough. And that's Elaine Kenworthy. He's a professor of um, sociology at the University of San Diego. And when we had you here last, uh, uh, Lane, you were uh, you were teaching at the U of A. That's right. Yeah. And some of when I when I went online to look on your bios and stuff, it's still some of the bios sound like you're still at at U of A. Are you, or is it you're completely out in in, in San Diego now? I'm in I'm in San Diego. I, I moved in 2014. I think it might be a Wikipedia page or something, which I have no control over. That somebody initially put Arizona and maybe nobody's updated it. I think, I think anyway, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Um, Lane Kenworthy is one of the most interesting speakers that we had at door and on the program. And I think yeah, I would say he's a, is an unconventional liberal or social Democrat. He's extremely good with statistics. So he's the kind of guy I would never want to argue statistics with. And uh, that's been a large part of his analysis of the social situation. He has a fairly recent book, 2019, I think it called, called Social Democratic Capitalism. And that's kind of a mouthful, but it's kind of an important mouthful. And I think to some extent uh, Bernie Sanders has sort of um, – Distorted things by referring to the the Nordic countries, the you know Sweden and Finland and Denmark and and uh, Norway uh, as socialist countries and moving towards socialism, but Lane, these countries are not actually socialist, right? No, not in the way that most people understand that term. So most of the economy is still privately owned. There, there are sectors in the countries, like healthcare, for example, which are in effect socialist in the sense that healthcare providers, nurses, doctors, and staff, and others are employed by the government. Uh, but most of the economy is still privately owned. And so in that sense, they're you know, structurally pretty similar to the United States and most other economies that we think of as, as capitalists. And that's one of the points that you make is that the United States is not that different in its economic model from the Nordic countries that that um, that um, Bernie Sanders, for example, admires. It's a matter of degree of um, of uh, social safety net and social support. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean. Uh there are clear differences between, say, Sweden or Denmark or Norway and the uh, United States. But I think it, it is um, more inaccurate than accurate to think of this as a categorical difference, as though they had some fundamentally different type of system, uh, in part because I just don't think that's right, but in part because it also makes it seem less possible for us to move in, in their direction. 
And so when you think, for example, about the size of the welfare state, about social programs, uh, their scope and their generosity, uh, just to give you an example, we're closer today, we, the United States, are closer today uh, to Denmark and Sweden than we are to the United States of a, of a century ago. So we've actually traveled pretty far along away, uh, on the way uh, or on the path to something like social democratic capitalism. We, we are clearly behind. There's a lot that we would need to do to, to get to something approximating the, the levels of welfare state generosity that those countries have. Uh, but it really is, I think, more accurately described as a difference of degree, a point on a continuum rather than two fundamentally different systems. So how would you define social uh, democratic capitalism? So American liberals and, and Democrats are really social Democrats in, in the European sense? Well, uh, yeah, no, quite a few of them are, I think, maybe maybe not all. Uh, so it's, uh, it's basically a capitalist economy, a democratic political system, uh, good basic schooling, and these are things that all of the, the rich democratic societies in pretty much every country in Western Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, the United States, uh, those countries all have those three features, capitalism, democracy, and, and good basic education. The thing that really separates or the things that really separate what I call social democratic capitalism from others are a, a big uh, welfare state, uh, a set of... Uh, of public or government service programs that make it easy to combine work and family so that that are conducive to paid employment, in other words. And then labor market and product market regulations that, uh, you know, go go some way to ensuring worker safety, consumer safety, the kind of things that we want in a, in a good society, but don't make it too hard for firms to do the kind of things they want uh, including hiring and, and firing employees. So instead of making the labor market and the product market really rigid, uh, maybe going overboard, I would say, in terms of, uh, of security, um, you, you allow them to be flexible but put in place uh, a set of cushions and supports that make it uh, easy for people to survive if, if the firm goes out of business, if they get downsized and so on. So, so those are three things, big welfare state, uh, employment-friendly government services, and then kind of modest rather than really restrictive regulations on product and labor markets. Those are the, the key things that separate social democratic capitalism from other types of capitalism. And I think if you if you go to Europe, the the programs for people who have kids and and so forth and so on for families are much like uh, some of the new Biden proposals. They're very, very family-friendly in terms of taking time off, in terms of supporting uh, families economically and so forth and so on. A lot of the when, – when they do these – and I'm not sure that I believe them, but they do all these surveys of the happiest countries in the world, um, a lot of times it ends up with uh, places like Finland, which is one of these countries, or Denmark. What – What's the real goal of social democratic capitalism? What's the what's the fundamental value that lies behind all this economic and social activity, legal activity? Right. Well, I think uh, I think there are multiple goals, and it's hard to reduce this to just one or two that are are most important. But but let me just give you a few that that are pretty pretty critical. 
Uh, so one is economic security. You, you want to, in a, in a rich country, uh, you're able to, and, and therefore it's a good idea to make sure that, that people can have a decent life, um, take some risks, uh, and not end up in, in dire straits, you know, owing hundreds of thousand dollars for a medical bill, uh, finding themselves out of work and unable to have any realistic prospects of a job, uh, unable to, you know, roughly have the number of kids they want, have decent housing, have enough food on the table, these kind of things. So you want you want some basic uh, security, especially economic security. You want to do right by the least well-off, people who are disabled, who you know, grow up in a, uh, a difficult household, who don't live in the, the best neighborhood, who don't have uh, easy access to schooling or, or medical care. You want to place a priority on making sure that, that their lives are at least okay uh, and that comes before, um, you know, maybe helping the upper middle class or, or the rich. Uh, you want to make sure there's a lot of liberty. And, and here, I think something that we've come to recognize, uh, especially just in the last 10 years, is that uh, despite the fact that here in the United States, liberty or freedom are, are considered really paramount. I mean, many people would put those right at the top of the list of the, the goals that they want to see in a society. Um we we haven't thought all that clearly about what exactly that entails, and and the Nordic countries have kind of stumbled on to the fact that if you've got a, a bunch of government supports and you you do this well, you do it effectively, and many of those supports are provided universally, but, but all of them are available to to the least well off. Um, uh, while, while it seems, and, and to an extent you really are, creating a dependency on the government, at the same time, you're allowing people to be less dependent on other actors, uh, on their parents, other family members, uh, on charities, on churches, on friends, and the way that many Americans, you know, despite our love of freedom, end up being heavily dependent on, precisely because we don't have uh, quite the array or the generosity of, of government programs that, uh, that you do in other countries. Uh, just, just to give you one example of this, uh, think about the way that so many Americans now are, are in a situation where they're having to spend a lot of time, in many cases money, taking care of aging parents. You know, that's not a bad thing to do by any stretch, but the, the fact that so many people feel obligated or required to do it can make your life uh, a lot more difficult. We could handle this an alternative way, and in fact, in the current jobs proposal uh, by the Biden administration, there's about, I think it's about $400 billion set aside for uh, for paying for more elder care. So you can set up a government program that would allow people to move at, at very low cost into a nursing home or would provide in-home care, maybe just a couple times a week if that's all you need. Um, but if you need it, 24-7, you know, all day, every day, then, then you can provide that. Uh, just tax everyone uh, in order to pay for it. That's a small amount of money that comes out of everyone's pocket. This is how public programs like this work. Uh, and you'd, you'd really reduce the burden on a lot of, uh, of Americans who are, as I said, spending a lot of, of time and money. That's just, just one example, but it, it enhances uh, the, the kind of freedom that m- most of us want to pursue the kind of lives we want to lead, even though, you know, on the surface, it makes us much more dependent on the, on the government. 
And that would be the argument against these programs that they make us more dependent, they make us less free. But if you have unemployment insurance, you're freer to leave a poor employer. Um, you're freer to, to move somewhere else in the country to get a better job. You're freer to look around. And you're, you, you're not as afraid of, uh, where the last, uh, your last meal or how, how support for your family comes from. So in some ways, I think that what Americans are blind to is the, the impact of social programs on their freedom to do and be what they want to be. Um, social security is, is one thing that gives pe- folks a, a chance to move someplace when they retire. It provides uh, uh, support from them if they uh, get injured. And these actually increase your freedom, your personal freedom to do and move and, and make choices. But it seems to me, Lane, that the whole way the American well, maybe it's the conservative movement looks at it as that these are horrible, um, horrible freedom eating, <laughs> freedom eating programs that destroy people's chance to make decisions. Yeah, I, there, there certainly is that that strain of argument uh, that's that's been front and center in our politics and to some degree in our culture for a, a long time, but. But at the same time, I I don't think there are many, even many conservatives in the United States who really feel dependent on the government when they think about a Social Security check or when they think about their kids going to public schools. These programs have been around so long, and we take them for granted to such a degree that, that people don't really think of them as fostering a dependency. Now, there are some, but mostly libertarians, who would make this argument. But I, I don't think many Americans... Uh, feel that way, and I don't think they'd feel that way if we had a you know a Swedish or Danish style childcare system. Uh, that in some ways would just involve extending the, the K through 12 education system down a little bit in the in the age range, or if we adopt a, a, or create a, a national sickness insurance program, or if we expand the number of paid holidays and vacation days. Uh, all of these things, and in a sense, our government programs or government mandates, but once they become part of the, the fabric of life, you know, people don't feel any kind of stress because they're dependent on government. It's, this is just something that uh, the government does that makes our lives better. I was thinking of Obamacare, the ferocious opposition to Obamacare that has gone on since it was introduced uh all through the whole Trump administration, uh, the attempts to get rid of it, even though it's, it's the medical insurance of millions of people, the ferocious ideological opposition to it as government overreach. I mean, I think it led in part to the tea, rise of the Tea Party just because Obama administration decided to have a program that would help people have medical insurance. And certainly I worked for companies that provided no medical insurance at all and where, you know, we spent time, somebody got really sick raising money. And the amount of money, of course, that we could raise was tiny compared to the amount of money you need if you really get sick in the United States. But the opposition to Obamacare, you you would say that was because it was new. It was a different program. And that opposition, I don't think, has completely gone away. 
No, I don't think it has either, but it's really striking how the the opinion on the part of the American public toward Obamacare has changed as the program has settled in and, and as I said earlier, just become part of our our reality. Um, mo- most people when polled these days, I mean, it still doesn't get overwhelming support, but, but a majority of people uh, pretty consistently these days, and this has been true for at least, I think, the last five years or so, will say they support the, the program. This has happened with virtually every uh, public social government social program that we've adopted in the country. The, the only major exception here is welfare. They've gone from being, you know, when they're created, something that people don't know anything about, they don't understand. If they're conservative, they may tend to oppose it just because you know, your kind of knee-jerk reaction is you don't like the idea of bigger government. If you're liberal or progressive, maybe you favor it, but you're not really sure why or whether it'll work well. And then if the program works, you know, 10, 20, 50 years later, uh, people just take it for granted and they, they don't want it changed. They might want it tweaked a little bit, but they certainly don't want it gotten rid of. If you tried to get rid of Social Security today or Medicare, uh, or unemployment insurance or even the earned income tax credit or many other programs, lots of people would, uh, would, would disapprove. And, and that's a big part of the reason why the Republicans in 2017, 2018 had such a hard time getting, uh, you know, despite the fact that they were in position to do it, getting enough support to, to overturn Obamacare or the, the Affordable Care Act. That it's called. Yeah, I think even back to the Bush administration where Bush won his second term and then they, they sort of said, well, what do you want to do? And what he wanted to do was privatize Social Security. That went over like, you know, the proverbial lead balloon. I mean, that didn't go over well. The United States, are we taxing at a a much lower level than the European countries? Some people would say uh, a huge, much larger proportion of our GDP of the of the wealth and, and 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 the income of the country. It's really the income of the country goes to military uh, things, uh, programs, uh, equipment stationing people overseas compared to the European countries. So it's been easy for them to have better social programs and uh, and uh, a little bit better distribution of wealth than it is for the United States. Um, that, that's true, although I think the, the magnitude of the difference here is often overstated or sometimes overstated. So th- there have been points in the last well, in the period, let's say, since World War II, where we've spent as much as, I believe, about 6% of our GDP on the military. A typical Europe, Western European country spends 1% to 2%, so let's say about 1.5%. But we're now down to, uh, I believe it's about 3.5% or so. So the gap between us and a typical Western European country or Canada or Australia is only about 2% of GDP. 2% of GDP is a lot of money. Um, but it's not nearly as much uh, as most people would think. So, for example, uh, if you take the amount of spending on all so-called welfare state or, or social programs in a country like Sweden or Denmark, it's in the neighborhood of 30% of GDP. And in the United States, it's about 20% of GDP. So the gap between us is about 10%, but the military spending gap is only about 2%. So even if we... 
In other words, in some hypothetical scenario, even if we cut our military spending down to the level of a typical Western European country, that would only get us, I don't know, about a fifth of the way. And, and all that money went to social programs. It would only get us about a fifth of the way to to what we need to, to get on par with, say, Denmark or Sweden or Norway. Um, you, you mentioned in your book that the three props, I guess, to social um, capitalism in, in the past or to, to the capitalist society, families, civic organizations, and unions. And you say these probably won't revive, and certainly in terms of unions, you can look at the recent Amazon union fight, and, and that seems true that that workers are not going to be able to raise their wages back up, get their proportion of the um, the um, wealth of the country without unions, and on the other hand, they can't really revive them. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic. I'm sorry to say about the future of labor unions in the United States. I, I very much wish I could be more optimistic, but I just find it uh, hard to be. Unionization uh, has been declining in the private sector in the United States since the mid 1950s. It's not a recent phenomenon. It's not something that started under Ronald Reagan. Uh, and it's been a pretty slow, steady decline over that period. So that's that's one reason. I mean, I, I've lived most of my adult life with progressives suggesting that, well, if we could just do this one thing or this other thing, uh, unions might be able to revive and get back to where they were in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and it hasn't happened politically um, but the, the thing that makes me even more pessimistic is the fact that the same thing has been happening, not quite uh, the same degree, but this drop in unionization has been occurring in, in virtually every rich democratic nation, which means including almost all of Western Europe. There are a, a handful of exceptions, five countries to be specific. All of them have a very peculiar arrangement whereby you can only get access to unemployment insurance if you join a labor union. This was an arrangement that was created long, long time ago in Which the middle parts of the 20th century. Uh, and it'd be pretty hard to introduce it now. Um, but with those exceptions, every other country's been following more or less a, a similar path in terms of unionization rates, which suggests that it's not just about our our government policy, uh, you know, right to work laws, and and the difficulty that uh, unions have in in organizing, and the the easy access to various mechanisms that employers have to to try to prevent that, or to try to get rid of unions. There's there's something more than that that's going on, and and that leads me to to suspect that even if we were to change our laws significantly. Uh, it, it's really hard for me to see us making much progress in uh, boosting that unionization rate, which now overall is down to about 10 percent, I think about 6 percent in the, the private sector. Yeah, unionizing someplace can be not a lot of fun, folks. I've been in two union organizing things. One we won, which was great. Everything improved. And the other we lost. And um, the government keeps them the the um, company from firing you immediately. But within a year, everybody who really was active in supporting the union was fired. 
So it's a, and it's a conflict-ridden thing because some some workers will be for it and some will be against it. And I think Americans don't like bringing that kind of division into the workplace. And uh, once you convince a whole lot of the people that that unions are a terrible thing, then you get into these uh, ferocious fights. Unless you're in a particularly, you know, when you have a uh, a situation where unions have been the norm in the past, then you can union, unionize a new company that's in the same uh, market. I kind of agree with you. I don't know what other factors are causing unions to decline. Do you have a sense of, of what it is? Well, I, I do suspect that at least part of it, I, I really don't know how much of it, but at least part of it, is this general phenomenon which we've seen since roughly the 1960s of, of people being less interested in joining organizations. So you mentioned earlier the, this issue of uh, declining organizations and weakening of, uh, of families. Uh, and, and both of those phenomena are true. And again, we, we see this in a variety of countries, not just the United States, that uh, fewer people are getting married, they get married later, they're more likely to to split up, to divorce, that is, uh, if they do marry. Fewer people are joining all kinds of organizations, whether it's PTAs or Elks Clubs or, uh, or, or virtually anything. It doesn't necessarily mean there's less community or contact here in the United States. You know, the Internet and, and, and other things are, are partial substitutes here. Um, but this does seem to be a fairly regular phenomenon that uh, has played out in a lot of rich democratic societies since, uh, again, about the 1960s. And I suspect that unions are, are part of that. Again, there's, there's almost certainly much more going on when it comes to labor unions. Uh, but the, the, the lack of desire or maybe lack of perceived need on the part of people to, uh, to join organizations probably, you know, given how common this is across all of these societies, probably has something to do with it. I remember as, um, as a, a kid and uh, and growing up that the 4th of July celebrations that we had in my small town in Oklahoma started fading. And uh, at one time, you know, everybody was sponsoring it and there were parades or all this sort of thing. And then that begins to, to fade and it becomes less important. Um, and it doesn't, it's not affected by most of the social issues. Um, another thing you say is that in, in modern industrialized countries where people have a lot more personal freedom, religion or at least organized religion doesn't play as much role. And that's true in Europe and true here. Yeah, that's just another example of, uh, of uh, decline or weakening of various types of, uh, of organization. And the case of religion also and a traditional sources of, uh, of authority. Uh, but yes, um, organized religion has decri- declined quite sharply in, in most of Western Europe, and, and we've seen this here in the United States. There's been a lot of debate about this because we don't have great data, uh, but it's, it, it seems now pretty clear that this has been going on in the United States also since the 1960s, and especially rapidly since the 1990s. But it's partly a cohort phenomenon. Younger cohorts are just far less religious than uh, my cohort or, or, uh, or people who are older than me. And, and, you know, as the older generations die off and they're replaced, uh, the degree of religiosity and affiliation with all kinds of organized religion has begun to, to drop pretty sharply. 
Yeah, and, and Sedona, I think, is an exception. First, we have older people, so we have a lot of participation in uh, civic organization. Um, I think maybe where everybody came from is usually not Sedona. They came from somewhere else. They uh, may not have participated. They come here, they retire, and um, if you don't participate in organizations in Sedona, you really don't meet anybody, and there's not much to do. So here, that's strong. Um, the religious issue, I don't know. One of the one of the things that that I would say is that, that particularly for younger people, um, the image they have of, of, of when someone says I'm a Christian is uh, a sort of reactionary person who's racist and homophobic and so forth and so on. It's a it's a very near, a negative perception, and it's it's not really accurate of, uh, across the board. But there's a lot of the, the adoption of, of, of Trump by the by the religious right has made them political enemies in, in a casual way of, of whole cohorts of younger people. I, I don't know what you do about that. Uh, once somebody decides that that's not for them or that's based on things they don't believe in anymore – then it's very hard to reconnect people with that. Yeah, I think, you know, again, this is a this is a very common and general process that we see in, in rich societies of the decline of religion. And, it, you know, it's affected also by the fact that science keeps advancing and you know, giving us answers to questions that we used to turn to religion for. But there's an additional fact in the United States, I think, that has to do with religion intersecting with politics. And so when the when the Christian right um, uh, became influential in, in the Republican Party beginning in the 1980s, uh, I think it saw that as a means to enhance its influence, not not only in politics, but in broader society. And it began to take more more positions on controversial social issues and, and more more sharply conservative positions. And, and for a while, that seemed to work really well, because it was quite popular among the the base and especially evangelicals, but it it's had the long run effect of turning off, as you suggested, turning off uh, a lot of people who equate religion with oh homophobia, intolerance, uh, um, uh, and a variety of other things that, that they may not be so fond of. And, and so instead of thinking of religion, you know, as first and foremost a, a source of community, as, as many people have for a long time, they. They equate it with particular views that they just find so distasteful that they feel like they can't be part of it. Yeah, even when you're in Spain, um, there there would be huge cathedral, but the actual area where people have uh, services is a tiny side chapel. Uh, that the, the churches have emptied out, even the more conservative. Um, areas in Europe, and I think people are finding new ways to spirituality. But I think it's um, there. I don't think they're clear how they want to do that organizationally. But religion has been one of the things that has sort of held people together. And once you don't have it, um, there's a problem. I, I would say that the United States is so diverse religiously that the, the situation here is different than I don't know in Sweden, where it's almost entirely Lutheran and and so forth and so on. But with the fail, with the failure or the 
decline of these older ways of organization, what do you see emerging? In other words, if civic organizations, families, unions are in decline, religion is in decline, organized religion we're talking about here, folks, not the religious feelings necessarily, what's on the rise? Yeah, I'm not sure we have a good answer to that, but I think I would I would say a couple of things. So one is that I think the experience of Western European countries, and especially the Nordic countries, which not only have done well with their, their social democratic uh, arrangements, uh, but also have been a, a, the countries where religion has declined most severely, I think the fact that people continue to live pretty healthy, happy lives there suggests reason for optimism. They found other ways to experience community and to, to do the kind of things that uh, that they want to do. So hopefully that'll prove true here in the United States as well. Uh, there's also this possibility that religion just won't decline nearly as much. You know, it, it, as I said, it has been declining pretty sharply maybe for the last half century and particularly since the 1990s, but there's no guarantee that that'll continue all the way you know, to, to match what's happened, say, in the Nordic countries. Um, so, so look, the, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say I, I wanted you to, to ask you a, uh, uh, the broadest question about your thinking, which is why should we move toward a – uh, a more social democratic capitalism of Nordic countries. Why should we do that? Why should the United States do it? And what would it mean in in a practical way? And wh- and what are your basic sort of recommendations? Right. So as to why we should do it, uh, I think the simple answer is that it seems to work very well. This is not about uh, fulfilling some ideology about starting with the. Uh, some vision of uh, a good society and and saying uh, we can't do well until we get there. It's just looking at these countries. Well, first of all, looking at our own society, at, at our own country here in the United States, and how much better it is now than it was a century ago before we started putting in place these government programs that, that enhance security and, and freedom and, and opportunity and so on. And looking at these other countries that have gone a bit further and seeing that they do even better on things like economic security and low poverty and freedom and health and, and happiness, uh, and that it doesn't break the bank, you know, that you can afford to, to do this, uh, and then maybe simply copying some of their programs uh, in order to, to do it. Now, what, what programs should we copy? Well, we've already got a lot of the ones that we need in place from uh, public health care or just paying for, for private health care to a uh, pension program, Social Security, to unemployment insurance, to programs for uh, those with disabilities, and uh, and much more. Um, but we do need to expand the generosity of some, or we should expand the generosity of some. We, I think, should add on a, a national early education program, child care and, and preschool. It'd be great if we had paid parental leave. Right now we've got a, a kind of minimal unpaid parental leave or family leave requirement, it would be much better to have something closer to a year of uh, of paid parental leave. It would be good to have a a national sickness insurance program. It would be good to to have an elder care program along the lines of of what I mentioned earlier. Uh, And and a variety of 
of other expansions of existing programs. And, and before I forget, let me just mention one critical issue that would be a problem for the United States and, and would separate us from, from what the Nordic countries have in a, in a problematic way. And this goes back to labor unions. Um, they, they get a lot of the good stuff they need. The Nordic countries get a lot of the good stuff they need through these government programs. Um, but labor unions handle most of the, the question of getting good wages. Um, and if, if in fact it's going to be impossible or extremely unlikely or difficult for us to, uh, to resurrect labor unions, then we've got to figure out some other way to make sure that wages at the low end are high enough and that wages for everybody, you know, at least up through the middle, are rising uh, as the economy grows. Those have both been big problems here in the United States over the last 40 years or so. Uh, so minimum wage is one obvious solution here, but that doesn't really solve the problem of, of wages, let's say for a typical working class person or even middle class household rising over time to, to keep up with economic growth, which is very much something that, uh, that we want. Uh, and so here, uh, I think we have a couple of possibilities. Uh, one is to, um, to make the earned income tax credit more generous, to make it available further up the income distribution. Right now it goes to about 25% of American households. It'd be better if it went to, uh, say, 50%, maybe even two-thirds, something along these lines. Uh, and then to tie it instead of to prices. So right now it's indexed for inflation. So it, it goes up regularly when prices go up. That's a good thing. But it would be even better if it were tied to something like average wages in the way that Social Security is, because that essentially ensures that it keeps up with economic growth uh, over the long run. So that'd be one thing. It, it's a small subsidy, but that would that would help um, uh, deal with the problem of, of slow wage growth. I think the other solution is something that Australia has done. For, for quite some time, which is instead of just setting a single national minimum wage, instead to set a, a minimum wage for various industries or sectors or even various occupations, uh, because a, a national minimum wage is, is a really good thing. It's really helpful, um, but it, it's, it's only a floor, and for many occupations, it doesn't really have all that much impact uh, because the wages in that, that occupation, you know, unlike, say, uh, retail sector workers, um, the wages in, in other occupations are not right down at the bottom. So even when the minimum wage goes up, it has little impact. But if we set a sector-specific or an occupation-specific minimum wage, it's a little more complicated, but it's very much doable. And we know that from the Australian experience. Uh, then you can you can have government doing more to, again, ensure that pay levels are decent for lots of people, not just those at the bottom, and also to help ensure that pay levels are rising over time as the economy grows. Yeah, so I think that's – I find your work very, very thoughtful, and uh, and you're, you're far more optimistic. And I think one of the things I hear on the left and among liberals is uh, all this deep, dark pessimism about everything. And – what I get from from reading your work is that when you look at the long term, things are actually going in the right direction. It's when you look at the short term and you have these recessions and you have these um, 
the actual violence and anger people feel when they find their wages falling behind prices and, and, and so forth and so on, when they have to go from a high-paying job to a low-paying job. Um, these fuel a, a tremendous amount of, of personal anger and, and, and resentment. Um, so they're not abstract things. They're, they're practical things. But I, but I hear you when you say things have, if you look at the long term, things have been moving up in most of the, um, industrialized, now computerized world. Um, how do you bring other countries into this who are not so lucky? Oh, yeah. No, that's a, yeah, that's a I know. Question. I'm sorry and, the last five one, minutes. Where I have a lot less expertise because they, these aren't the ones that, uh, that I study. But I guess I'll say, I'll say a couple of things. Um, one is that I think progressives, this is not true of all to be sure, but, but I think progressives underappreciate the benefits of globalization. Uh, so in the last roughly 30 years, since about 1990, there's been more progress worldwide in reducing deep poverty than ever before in, in human history. A lot of that is a function of China's economic growth and the fact that a lot of Chinese have benefited from its industrialization. So their, their wages have been pulled up. They've gone essentially from being subsistence level farmers, uh, as most people have been throughout human history, uh, to wage laborers. And yes, some of them are, are working in sweatshops and it's grueling and, and they're working you know, awful hours, but their lives are nevertheless better than they were before. And many of them or their kids will subsequently move up uh, into better jobs. It's roughly the same process that happened here in the United States in the beginning in the 1800s. Um, and so it's a, a somewhat slow process, and there there's plenty to worry about or complain about or object to, but uh, lives overall, on average, have gotten much, much better. And it's not just China. I and mean, China is really important because it has a fifth of the world's population, so when when things change in China, it affects a lot of human beings. Uh, but this is happening elsewhere, too. And it's, to a non-trivial degree, uh, a product of or at least helped by globalization. If firms making stuff in China weren't able to sell them to us here in the United States or in Western Europe or, or other places with more money, uh, they wouldn't have been able to industrialize or, or not nearly as rapidly as they have. So globalization and trade, I, I think, are sometimes underappreciated because we, we tend to focus on the bad parts, the sweatshops uh, and, and so on, and, and forget about or, or overlook the benefits. And then the other thing, so I, my recommendation there is that we ought to try to better appreciate trade and, uh, and boost it uh, going forward to the extent we can. And I would say, in part because I'm not someone running for elected office, so I'm free to say this. You know, I, I would say even if that comes at the expense of some manufacturing jobs here in the United States, um, that's painful, but there are things that we can do. We can, we can ideally, if we're willing to, we can train people for other jobs. And when, you know, when an American loses a manufacturing job, but somebody who's much poorer in China or Indonesia or wherever else in the world gets it, that's an improvement in human well-being. I'm not advocating getting rid of all manufacturing. I understand. In the United we, States. 
Our our forty five minutes is pretty much run out. We've got one minute okay. left. I'd like to thank thank Democrats of the Red Rocks for their support. I'd like to thank El Portal Hotel. Uh pet friendly. Each room is beautifully and differently designed. Um the League of Women Voters has a good program coming up on on um April twenty ninth. Uh, you can look, find, can find this on the door website. Uh, so they've linked to the, uh, League of Women Voters, uh, thing, which I think will be easier for folks to find. Join with, uh, join with us next week. We'll be talking to the Sedona Chief of Police about policing in Sedona. We've had a whole series of, uh, five, now will be six or seven, uh, programs on criminal justice, criminal justice reform, uh, and fairly broad, uh, spectrum of people. I hope you'll turn in next week to Democratic Perspective. All our programs are on vvid.org. That's our website. Thank you very much, folks. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.